0: Well, I I think now more than ever, I don't need to persuade you that we live at a time where peace is in short supply, where we could almost define um, the news cycle by uh, hostility and conflict. Um, Whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's nation to nation, whether it's even within the walls of Christian churches, I feel like now more than ever, um, it's easy to say That we are a world um, at war with itself, and a world that does not have peace. And one of the most basic questions of life is, where does that conflict come from? Is it because people lack education? Is it because people lack opportunities? Is it because you are born in this country or that country? What is the basis for all of the conflict that we see around us, and what is the basis for the conflict that we even see in our own lives, sometimes even in our own hearts? Well, James actually gives a really simple analysis in James chapter 3—I'm sorry, 4— Verse 1, James asks rhetorically, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, very simply, the reason that there is conflict in the world, the reason that there is trouble in uh, in other nations that are warring with each other, the reason you don't get along with a family member or neighbor the reason that even here in this church, people um, can, can be at odds with one another is sin. <laughs> it's wanting something that we can't have. It's wanting something God doesn't want us to have. It's preferring ourselves before someone else. It's thinking we're right and it matters that everyone else knows that I am right. That kind of selfishness is what breeds quarrels and fights among us. And it's really just another way of saying sin. Sin is the reason that there's problems. If, 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 if the problem is, uh, is, if you think the problem is anything else, you know, there's lack of food, there's poverty, that's why there's sin. Well, why is there poverty in the world? It's because there's sin. There are people (coughs) that are are very greedy with their money, don't want to share. There's also people that are very lazy and don't want to work. I mean, whichever one it is, poverty is not because of a lack of resources. We live in a world that is full of resources, so there is a breakdown there. But either way, whether laziness or greed, it is sin. Whatever issue that you think it is, it will always reduce down to sin. It's a whole other subject. But what we want to talk about in the book of Ephesians, then, is how can we possibly make peace? There's so many different kinds of conflicts in the world, of course. You have geopolitical ones. You have interpersonal ones. You have... uh, every manner of divisions of, of, of opinions and beliefs about even the most um, inane things that people will get upset about on the internet, opinions about TV shows or, you know, what, you know, what's better, Star Trek or Star Wars or, you know, anything. People can create conflict about anything. How can you make peace? Well, there is, in the Bible, a universal answer to how we achieve world peace. And it's really only if we are united in God. That's it. If the one single thing that unites us all is the actual thing that unites us all, God, then we can have peace. It makes sense, doesn't it? If, if we're all made by the same creator, all made in his image, living in his world, doesn't it make sense that the only way we will ever achieve the kind of unity that everyone is saying that we need to have is if we are lined up and in the one God who made all things. It's, by the way, an argument for why there can't be multiple gods, or you can't have peace if there are multiple gods. There's got to be one God, one united framework, one idea that drives all of reality and existence. And so that's a simple answer that Paul's going to give, and I'm giving that to you up front, even as we're going to kind of um, tease this out and define it a little bit, but let me give you the punchline. There can only be peace On earth, if there is peace with God, there can only be unity amongst us if there is unity with Him. So that is why, in the context of Ephesians 2. Uh, 11 and 22, the, the idea is separation and distance, a lack of unity between us and between God. We, we talked last time about this distinction between Jews and Gentiles and how historically in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures of the Bible, there was this stark contrast between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the, the chosen people of God, through the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Gentiles are really just every other nation on the face of the planet. And ideally, the Jewish people were to be representatives of God's kingdom. They were supposed to show what, what, what having that unity with God looks like, what unity amongst each other looks like. And the world was supposed to see that as a model and to be enticed by that, persuaded by that. But as the Bible tells us, they failed to do that time and time again. And recall that at the time that Jesus, or Paul is even writing this, the Jews had rejected Jesus, their own Messiah. That was the, the depths of their uh, sin against their God and the separation that existed between them is that they had literally, the political and religious, religious leaders had literally pursued the death of their own prophesied Messiah. So there's no assumption, assumption here necessarily that because we're talking about Jews and Gentiles that Jews are somehow necessarily a better people than Gentiles by default because, of course, they had been the cause or one of the instruments of Jesus' very death. But there is a sense in which ideally if the Jewish people who were there supposed to be Um, they would have represented the kingdom of God. And so when this text talks about, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit, a hostility between Jews and Gentiles, we're talking really about a distance um, that is between that which is holy and righteous and good and that which is worldly and sinful and selfish. And again, not that the Jewish people um, in, in the Bible were really very often that kind of, ideal. But that is kind of the context that uh, Paul is, is writing this from. Let me read again verse 14 through 16. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. Unity between Jews and Gentiles here that's being used as sort of a, a, a microcosm of every kind of conflict and lack of peace. This is the ability of all kinds of people to create walls and to create separations and to create conflict with one another. But this is just one of the premier kinds of walls and conflicts of the Bible is that between the Jewish people and the Gentile Nations, and we're, we're to, you know, in a way, you're going to have to remember all of the things that happened in the Old Testament as you think of that. There's times where uh, Jewish people and, and Gentiles were, were constantly uh, in conflict and at war. We'll talk about that in just a second. But you really want to feel the weight of this, this distinction between the two to really appreciate this very plain statement that He Himself. Is our peace. It's a very emphatic statement. Jesus and no one else is our peace. Jesus Christ is the basis of peace, capital P. And it implies that we cannot have peace without God and without Christ. As Isaiah says, as we'll be celebrating in just a month or two, he is the prince of peace. And he made that peace. Ironically, not through killing people, but dying on a cross. He killed hostility. He killed violence and war by suffering violence on himself, shedding his own blood on the cross. What is peace? What is peace? The idea of peace in the Bible between like two hostile groups, it's not live and let live. It's not a ceasefire agreement Or an armistice. An armistice is just an agreement that we're not going to shoot at each other. You just stay over there. I'll stay over here. That's what exists between North and South Korea. Technically, they're still at war, but they're just at a cessation of hostilities at the moment. There's no peace treaty there. And technically, they are still uh, in conflict. It's just they're not, they're, they're like, well... I'm not going to hit you if you don't hit me, but I still don't like you kind of situation. The idea of a peace treaty or a true peace treaty is when both parties agree to work together to promote long-term unity with an actual plan and with an actual goal. So the Treaty of uh, of Paris, which was ironically between America and Great Britain in 1783 after the Revolutionary War. It, just, it was signed in Paris, so it's called that, but it's actually the tr- uh, peace treaty between America or the colonies of America and Great Britain. It resulted in the two nations becoming close allies, cooperating many times over the course of more than 200 years. There's, I don't think there's anyone here still upset uh, at Great Britain for the Revolutionary War and vice versa, I don't think. Um, So that's a true peace treaty is that when you can say we have worked together, not only to have peace with each other, but to cooperate together. So when we talk about peace between Israelites and Gentiles, again, um, there were times, like in the book of Joshua, which we've been studying on Sunday nights together, if you're interested in joining us for that, where Israel was commanded to bring judgment, to be in hostility, in conflict with these other nations, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites. But it was because God had said, Israel, the time of their judgment has come. God is the judge of all nations. I'm going to use you as an instrument of my judgment against them. It is my judgment. I'm using you as the the sword of that judgment. So obviously there's conflict when you're killing other people. Now, you might think that's unjust, but at other times, the Israelites would engage in the same behavior, lifestyles, and sins of the surrounding nations rather than being holy and set aside. You can look at places like 2 Kings 17, verse 7 through 11, but it's a common idea that Israel would engage in the same kinds of sinful uh, behavior as others. And so God would use the Gentile nations— to be his sword of judgment against Israel. It went both ways. There's no partiality in that sense that when, when wickedness is done, God must bring judgment against it. So sometimes you had Israel's against the Gentiles, you had Gentiles against um, Israel. And understand that when I say Israel, I mean Old Testament biblical Israel, not necessarily the nation as it exists today. They're not um, based on on the word of God. So if you have a, in your mind that that's, the same exact nation, it's, it's different. We're talking about a different thing. Same people group, but um, that nation, this nation of Israel exists now is not this nation of Israel that existed uh, thousands of years ago. Anyway, Israelites and Gentiles certainly hostile to each other. But they did end up sharing one thing in common, which is exactly that, disobedience to God. Rebellion against God. It's kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. Like Jews and Gentiles, they're supposed to be by nature hostile to each other. And so they were throughout the Old Testament. But somehow the one thing that they agreed upon was that, you know, sinning sure is fun. (laughs) That's the one thing that they could agree on. And so they made an enemy of God. But of course, that didn't mean that they were friends towards each other still, it's just ironic that the one thing that both groups agreed on was, you know, sometimes God is just really overbearing and maybe we don't want to do things his way. That's why when we talk about peace between Jews and Gentiles, we're talking fundamentally about peace with God. The only thing that can create peace between Jews and Gentiles is for God to unite them to himself by making Peace between him and all sinners. That's what, what everyone, both Jew and Gentile, need. That's the one thing that can unite all of us, a love for God rather than a love for being enemies of God. That can't be the thing that brings us together. So while this passage is about bringing, you know Jews and Gentiles to one another, Paul's saying, really, that can't happen. Unless a new thing is created, combining both Jews and Gentiles into one new person, into one new creation, which is the body of Christ, the people of God. And so we have this ironic imagery of God making peace by destroying. He destroys hostility. He destroys the walls that are between us. That's how he makes peace. It's almost a little bit of wordplay. to, to say that he, he builds by tearing down. In order to make peace, he must make an enemy of that which is an enemy of peace. Now, what exactly is the nature of this hostility? He says, he has made us both one by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, So the question is, what is the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles? At least it's presented, again, um, primarily in the Old Testament. What's what's the thing that's creating this division and and antagonism between Jews and Gentiles? Well, the answer is in what Jesus had to do in order to break that dividing wall. What What does the Bible say, or what does the book of Ephesians say? It says that he broke down that wall in his flesh, so that means by dying on the cross, and that dying on the cro- cross abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So his dying on the cross somehow abolished the law of commandments and ordinances, and that is this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. What does that mean? <laughs> it's confusing when I read it first too, and I'm sure you might be wondering, well, what what does that mean? What do we mean by commands expressed in ordinances? Well, this basically is referring to the books of Exodus to Deuteronomy. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Law, because this is the law, or this is the books of the Bible, including Genesis as well, that Moses wrote as the human author of Scripture. God is the divine author of Scripture. Moses was the human author of Genesis through Deuteronomy. But when it comes to the birth of Israel as a nation, you have a bunch of laws that are recorded throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we're talking about those laws which pertain to the existence of Israel that would cause them to be the people of God. It's kind of like their constitution. And the very nature of those commandments was to teach the people, show the Jewish people how to behave as God's chosen people. And of course, that was going to be distinct than the nations of the world, because you're not a, a special or chosen people if you're doing exactly whatever everyone else is doing. So no more wa- worshiping gods of wood and stone or gold and silver who can't hear you, who can't move. You have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images for yourself. All right, no more sacrificing children in fire to please the wicked pagan gods as the as the Amorites did and as the Canaanites did. So, no, you, you don't sacrifice humans anymore. That's, that's wrong. That's bad. And so on. There's 613 commandments, approximately, um, that, dis- that talk about making this distinction between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. But the goal of those commandments and ordinances, it wasn't to create hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It, it doesn't necessarily create hostility toward uh, me and thieves just because I don't steal, for example. Uh, a murderer and I may not necessarily have anger towards each other just because I don't murder. And I'm not necessarily angry with a murderer, even though they should stop murdering. But it doesn't necessarily mean I am um, like hostile to you, like I want to rip your head off, like I, I want to murder you to keep you from being a murderer. You see, so just because the law said, here's what you must do, Israel, to be my chosen people, it wasn't necessary for the purpose of using it to be hostile and antagonistic towards the Gentiles. The nation of Israel, if they had lived according to the Mosaic law, should have been a beacon to those surrounding nations that proclaimed this is what worshiping God looks like, and this is what it means. And maybe they came close to that a couple times in the Old Testament, but for the most part, the Jewish people failed to keep the law of God. They used the law instead to create division and hostility between Jews and Gentiles rather than using the law to question their own motives and heart and attitude And they even used the law, rather than to actually behave as God's chosen people, to make divisions amongst themselves. So not only did they use it to make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but they made distinctions amongst themselves. Remember, one of the main themes of the Gospels in the New Testament is that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they used the word of God to make distinctions between Jews, you know, the good Jews and the bad Jews the real truly holy Jews and the ones that are just sort of on the outside. So they were using the word of God as this tool to create conflict and hostility. And this is an important distinction to make that the word of God itself wasn't necessarily intended to create barriers between people per se, because here's how the argument might look. if, Or, or let, let's uh, take this hypothetical thinking jesus had to abolish the commandment and the ordinances and the ordinances are just uh, literally the greek word is dogma but they're just the doctrines okay so the beliefs and the commandments of the old testament jesus abolished by dying on the cross well why would he have to get rid of them and one argument you could make is because they are wrong they're they're evil because it's creating this hostility I mean, if the source of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is the Bible and Jesus had to abolish the Bible, that means there's something, you know, bad about this book. Wherever it goes, it creates conflict. And so Jesus, of course, he's got to die in order to tear down that that wall. But we know that the law is not evil. It's the word of God. This God is good. Romans 7.12 says, it is good and it's holy. Just like God is. We also know that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, meaning, get rid of it, because it's so awful. All it does is just create problems with people. Matthew chapter five, verse 17 and 18, Jesus makes crystal clear that He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law even to every jot and tittle, which is to say, every dotting of the "I" and crossing of the "t. So Jesus did not come to abolish the law. The problem isn't the law itself. The problem is the people trying to keep it. See, the law is trying to create a distinction between God and man. It's trying to say, this is who God is, and this is where you fall short. It's not supposed to be a tool necessarily to create walls between people, because what do we have in common? All people, all races, it's that we're sinners that we, and we need a Savior. Jews and Gentiles alike, Koreans and, and uh, Africans and, and Brazilians, everybody. I mean, we all are equal <laughs> in our need for a Savior. The Bible isn't trying to draw distinctions between people and people but people and a holy God, sinful people and a holy God. It was out of sinful pride and arrogance that the Israelites ever used the Mosaic law to create enemies of Gentiles and look down on them rather than to see the Bible as a priority and responsibility for them to live out. And of course, it's going to make a distinction between them and Gentile nations. And it might elicit... Oppression or persecution from the outside, you know, from, from those who are sinful, from those who hate God. They're going to they're gonna hate the Israelites. But the goal of the law was not to create that hostility. The goal of the law was to show us how to please the Lord. And of course, if people don't want to please the Lord, they're going to be against you. But the point, the point of it, the goal of it is not that. That's an outcome, but that's not a goal. For Jesus to abolish the law in his flesh, in the context of Ephesians 2, means that his death represented a removal of the law's demand on our lives. Or another way to say it, um, he's taking away an excuse for Jews to judge Gentiles as inferior because all who follow Christ have been freed of the guilt that the law produces because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus and does not apply to us in terms of creating guilt anymore. So if it doesn't, if by his death on the cross, he takes away the ability for the law to make guilt on us, how can I use it as an instrument to create divisions between us? Now, it's a whole other discussion when it comes to how Christ fulfills the law and nullifies the demand of the law, and yet we don't live as if there is no law. Um, and there's many passages that say things like Christ is the end of the whole law for believers, Romans 10.4, that uh, as believers, we're no longer, no longer under the, uh, the tutor of the law in Galatians 3.25, um, which was read this morning. Uh, in fact, we have died to the law, Romans chapter 7. So it's very clear that our relationship to the Mosaic law, whether Jew or Gentile, it's, it's gone in that sense. But uh, the Bible then talks about the law of Christ, law of love. And of course, there's duties and commandments and obligations to that. But it's not the same as the way the Israelites were to hold the Mosaic law. It's another whole other sermon. Um, the point is that by dying on the cross, For the sins of Jews and Gentiles, Jesus was pronouncing that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Because we're all sinners. No matter your race, your culture, your citizenship. Paul is so clear that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He says that Jesus created in himself one new people in place of the two. So it's not that one group absorbed the other group. It's not that one is just conceding or compromising with the other group. It's not that there's some halfway point between Jews and Gentiles or that Gentiles are kind of right about this, Jews are kind of right about this. It's not a peace that is forged by that kind of give-and-take relationship like most other peace treaties on the world. This is a radical peace treaty because it is to take Two separate, opposite, hostile groups and say, neither of those exist. There is now just one group. That's what we mean by new, replacing the two with one new group. All that there is now is a unified people of God. Christians are completely new people in Christ, not just another variation of something that already exists on earth. To put it more plainly, it's not that the gospel mission is trying to win people to our side if our side just means Southern California Christianity or you know, conservative Republican Christianity or American Evangelical Christianity. We are a new thing, not just a variation of the same earthly, worldly groups. The gospel is exactly this message that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we can only find peace with God and therefore peace with others if we are united, again, by the single most important truth that we are all sinners in need of grace <laughs> that need to be welcomed brought in, accepted by the God of the universe. And because then, if we are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're equal, there is no room for hostility within Christ. If there's one place on earth where people are at peace with each other, it should be here in the church. If there's one place where people can find a peace in a world full of conflict, it should be here amongst us, the people of God. We should be acting genuinely, not like just a variation of what exists in the world, but a new creation and a new people indeed. Now, I, we still you know, wear clothes that are made in you know, probably some poor sweatshop in China or something, I know. We brush our teeth using products from companies that are probably very corrupt and greedy like you can't help that right it's not it's not that it's not about the externals of things you still got to drive cars that that are made by greedy you know people and executives sure but in your core root identity as a person we should be different and that is the basis of peace you understand like we need to be completely different people as Christians. If we want to sell this idea, and I sell is kind of a vulgar way to put it, but to, to tell people out in the world, you know, in a world full of conflict, where it's so polarized, so angry, so upset, everyone, no one can agree on every, anything. There's this just increasingly hateful us versus them mentality. If we want to overcome that, we need to... Be a new people, a different people. I mean, it's very kind of catastrophic to say, Paul here to say, Jews and Gentiles in Christ, it's like neither of those exist anymore. There's just one new people. So don't think like a Jew. Don't think like a Gentile. Think like a Christian. It's not negating you know, knowing your Old Testament. Of course not. You've got to learn from the mistakes there if you want to be a new person. Don't repeat the mistakes here. We need to be a new person, though. If you want peace in this world, if you want peace in your neighborhood, if you want peace in your family, you need to act. You need to be completely different. We need to avoid exactly the same trap as the Jews did that Paul is is pointing out they're the ones who created this wall of hostility. It wasn't it wasn't the law which is a bad evil thing, it's just they, they used they let the word of God become something that that rather than caused holiness in us and and pointed out the the holiness of God to others, instead be a reason that we look down on on, on other people. To hear the way Christians now talk, I just, I, I, I don't want to listen to any Christians anymore except for the Christians here, because you have some Christians that are basically using the word of God to exclude everybody from the, from the kingdom of God, except people who are already Christians, which is kind of an odd way of thinking of it. Like, you're, you're basically saying that you can only be a Christian if you're a Christian, and people are using the word of God to kind of push out everybody. From, from ever coming in. And then on the other hand, you have Christians that, you know, treat the word of God as if it's a Mad Libs, and you can just interchange the definitions of words and take stuff out and put stuff in and make this mean it, it's accepting of everything under the sun. Well, if we use the word of God to create walls, you need to be very, 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 very careful you very, very because someone is going to use the word of God to create a wall against you and say you're not really a Christian. That is not the right mentality uh, to have about the Word of God. We should not be comfortable being judgmental and critical of people who need to hear the Word of God. That's counterintuitive. We assume that they're gonna be and hostility to God, and so we need to bring a message that you can be at peace with God through the blood of Christ. One thing that sort of uh, sort of bothered me—if this is uh, maybe too—no, I, I think this is worthwhile. So, um, uh, is in the news that um, that Christian groups and Muslim groups have banded together to to uh, protest against libraries having LGBT, um, pro-LGBT books in it, okay? So Muslims and Christians have come together to to protest LGBT stuff. What does that communicate? That communicates that the the wall of hostility between Christians and Muslims, who have very different theology, okay, very different theology, very different views of God and who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, right? Very different, but you know what can break down the wall of hostility? Is it the blood of Christ? No, it's just being upset and hating something. That's what you're communicating. What does that communicate to Muslims that I think need to hear the gospel, need to hear the word of God, need to be compelled um, by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? What it says is, you know, that actually doesn't matter as much as us hating something together. What do LGBT people think when they see Christians and Muslims band together to, to hate them? What, what message does that send to them? Well, two groups that, that have very, very, you know, different theology and historically have been in war and conflict, have killed each other. You know what they're willing to do? is make me a common enemy. That's shameful. (laughs) I don't know why people applaud that, why Christians applaud that, and churches applaud that. And if you've applauded it, we need to talk. We do. And if that's the kind of stuff that you like, I I think you need to grow up. That's not what we need in churches. We need the gospel. We need to be known as the peace people, the peace based on Christ people, not the willing to unite with people that are hostile to the gospel in order to to be hostile to other people who need to hear the gospel. That's ridiculous. That's preposterous. That is ungodly and unbiblical. That's not preaching the gospel. That's not discipleship. That's ignorant. That's racist. That's contrary to the purpose and plan of God. Sorry, not racism. It, it, that's, that's a true kind of bigotry to unite against people who need to hear the gospel by, by locking arms with people who don't believe in the gospel. Sorry, it's not racism. You can be Muslim or LGBT of any of any race. So apologize. Whatever, whatever racism means now, I don't even know. The definition keeps changing on me, but it that 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 bothers me a whole lot because this is so clear that the only way to create the only thing that should unite us is the blood of Jesus so i don't care if the cause is, is abortion if if you're willing to say that uh we, we you know we should just band together with any group that is Against abortion. Even ones that believe in a different gospel. What are you saying about the issue of abortion versus the gospel? I'm not saying abortion is not an important issue or LGBT issues or any of that stuff. But why are Christians not known for being the people who say that the wall of hostility has been broken down by Jesus Christ and his blood? It's very disturbing trends that I see within so-called Christianity. We do need to let people know they're sinners, for sure. But understand, they're not sinners because they don't agree with uh, Uncle Bill who grew up in Sunday school and, and has a certain idea of what Christianity should be and the kind of people that it excludes. People are sinners because God is holy and just, and he considers every one of your thoughts words and attitudes whether they match up with his holy demands to love him and to love others and if you fall short of that which is everybody including the people in this room then all of us should equally be pleading for the grace of christ People need to know that they can be right with God, not that they've committed some unforgivable sin, which is really just to not hold an opinion that you hold. People need to know that being accepted by God doesn't mean that they it's because they voted a certain way or they did some good work to appease a standard of righteousness that we created, but only through repentance and faith in the blood of christ as a payment for sin can a person be welcomed by god if the only thing that can unite people and bring peace is the blood of christ that needs to be the most obvious and clear message that the church is known for but i don't i don't get the sense that's what churches are known for these days Instead, we seem to be known for a hatred of someone or something or advocacy of some policy or person that isn't Jesus. What a dangerous place to be for a church. What a dangerous place for your soul if Christ is not the center of your worldview and his blood. I keep bringing up Titus, but I just, I, I'll bring it up until I get it, until we all get it. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Are we going to negate those verses? Because, well, we let it have a different time. We have social media. Do you see what's going on out there? This is not the time for us to be gentlemen and and gentlewomen. You know, this is a time to fight. This is a time to, 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 to push back. This is a time to be angry and upset. Well, I, do we just negate the word of God? Because, you know, we're uncomfortable with how things are going in the culture. I'm comfort, uncomfortable. I, I don't like it at all. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. He said he's taking his girls to a, a, a jujitsu thing, and then a seven-year-old girl just casually comes up to his oldest and says, you know, I have a crush on a boy and a girl. I'm not attracted to gender. I'm attracted to personalities. Seven-year-old person, isn't, well, you, know, you know you can just have friends too. You can just like people's personalities and be friends with them. You don't have to have a crush on them. You don't have to view them some romantic way. You can just be like people of different personalities. Why even make it a romantic or, or sexualized thing at seven years old? No, that, that, that is messed up. But should our response be anger, hatred, hostility, bring the walls? No, I, I I pity that poor girl. the The family ne- needs to know <laughs> that there is a God who has made all things and to whom all of us must give an account. And that maybe uh, seven year olds need to be concerned about slightly different things or, or view the world not in just this hyper sexualized way. That's you know because you know she's pansexual. She <laughs> I forgot to mention that she's pansexual. Um, she pronounced. Um, It's To show perfect courtesy to all people doesn't mean you agree with everything they say. It just means you're willing to listen and to respond without ripping their head off. Like I'm ripping your guys' head off today. Am I doing that? I'm not showing perfect courtesy to you. I get it. Got the mirror right here. I'm sorry, guys. But look what it says next. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's like social media existed then too, right? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's like all of Twitter. That's the definition of Twitter right there. That's in their headquarters. It should be. That's what it is. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when the hatred, the anger, the vitriol, the righteous judgment of God our Savior appeared, he saved us? No. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We should say self-righteousness. Look how good I am. go to church every week. No. But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We shouldn't be known for people that are hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be. Again, it doesn't mean you accept everything that's going on. It doesn't mean you're okay with certain things that are ungodly and unbiblical. But you're saying that the way to achieve peace with people, the way to get anywhere with people, is through the proclamation of the blood of Christ. Not protesting certain books or being put in, in libraries and aligning yourself with people who, who hate or don't believe in your Jesus. doesn't make any sense. Why would we applaud that? Why would we even be known for that? Now, maybe it's just some fringe groups in in Michigan. It's not the sense I get is this is a fringe thing um, to have this kind of um, attitude. But I do apologize if I'm getting hostile to you. If you think that I am creating walls between Christians here, I apologize. Indeed, that wasn't... that. That wasn't in my notes to be upset by it. So I don't want to be guilty of the thing I just told you not to do. So I apologize. If you want to talk about this, I want to hear you out. If you think there's a reason for why we must be a certain way in the times that we live in, I want to show you the courtesy and love and and build and not divide. So let me offer that as... um, is my offer of repentance if if I am going too far, if I'm creating classes or divisions here, I don't want to do that. I'll talk we can talk about it afterwards. Um, but I do want to hear you. So if by my um, passion about this subject, you feel like no I can't now I can't talk to Pastor Ray about it because he got really upset. So don't I you know, don't want to come to no I'm it'll be okay. We could talk you just set up a time we can talk about these issues going on in the culture. In the world, or you know, talk to Bing. He's way more <laughs> understanding and, and patient. <laughs> uh, if you think I'm too scary, you go talk to Bing. <laughs> I, I, I don't want you anyone to feel like if they come into this church, I'll say this, that there are these walls, these unspoken invisible walls that divide us. No, I don't want to be guilty of that either, so I apologize. Um, this is a place where we can find peace, okay? This is a place where people can feel welcome, even sinners, and know that they are going to hear about a gracious God who, yes, has a holy, righteous standard that he must uphold because he is just and good, but that he is also Extended his mercy and love by sending his own son in the flesh to literally physically die and shed his own blood, his own perfect holy blood for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again on the third day. That's what we need to be about. Heavenly Father, I I thank you. And Lord, I do um, ask forgiveness from you too. Lord, if I've said anything that contradicts my own argument here, it's foolish of me if that's... uh, that's what's happening. Um, but I, I pray, Lord, that in the spirit of, of peace and grace and mercy, that we would all strive to remind each other how we can um, be about the gospel, good news, <laughs> that we can be about the preaching of, of, of grace and mercy and forgiveness as, as high as our worst sin <laughs> So thank you, Lord, for that. You can have forgiveness um, towards us, that you do welcome us if we come by the blood of Christ and help us to have this attitude of true peace in our hearts. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.